We're going to be in the book of Exodus, chapter 1. So I'll ask if you turn there in your Bibles with me. It's Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8. In a moment, we're going to read through verse 15 of chapter 2. Right, we're, in a, we're starting an Advent series. We've been calling Christmas in the Desert, which is it's a way of saying a hope in the midst of our sorrow because God is with us. I mean, it's, it's all about longing for God to finally fulfill his promises that he's already begun in Christ. And so we're going to see how Exodus helps us do that. And last time, right, we saw that in the wilderness, that was the place where we feel insignificant, where we feel sometimes like life can be senseless at times. It doesn't make sense. But it's also the place where God meets us. Right? That's the place where God guides us, cares for us, and introduces us to his grace. And so we need to keep that in mind as we go back in the story and we're going to come back into the desert. We really haven't left the desert. Because when Moses wrote these words, he was explaining who this God was while everybody was still in the desert. And as we're going to see that the slavery of Israel in Egypt still went with them. Where, where they went. They still struggled with sin. And so this is going to help us um, to teach us more about the character of our God and, and how to trust him this Christmas season. And so let's read it, and then we'll pray. It's Exodus chapter 1. We're going to read verses 8 through 15 of chapter 2. This is the word of our God. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, unless they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son, 
And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And we went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we did just read a, a story filled with um, cruelty, abuse, and all kinds of oppression, and just seeing the truly ugly side of sin. And so this morning, as we look at our own lives and, and our own struggles and you know, places where we are still held captive, um, we pray that you would give us hope, hope to see that you are a deliverer, you do see us, you do hear our cries, and you know us intimately, and have promised to fix it. And so show us Christ, and give us this unshakable uncertainty that you will one day do away with evil. So send us your spirit now to help us see that, in Christ's name. Amen. I'll start with a story before we get going here. It's probably a familiar story. It was made into a film. Um, last couple years. You know, in 1841 in Saratoga Springs, a man named Solomon Northrup was, <coughs> excuse me, he was married, this guy moved to Saratoga Springs and he was married, he had three children. Um, he was unusual because he was a freed black man. He was the, the son of a freed slave. And this, he tells us in his biography, he tells this story called 12 Years a Slave, um, how, how his dad was really careful to give them an education that many people in his situation would never get to have, um, how in his free time he, he became qu quite an accomplished violin player. And it was actually because of his violin playing that he met these two white men who promised him lots of money if he would use his violin and travel with them 
to perform in a circus down in Washington, D.C. And so he trusted them. He went with them down through Albany to New York City, all the way down to D.C., being treated very kindly by these white men. I mean, food, uh, hospitality. As they were going down into the south, which it was where Washington, D.C. was, they actually procured for them free papers so that everyone knew he wasn't a runaway slave. I mean, by all accounts and purposes, they were protecting and, and caring for him. And then one night they had dinner together, and Solomon woke up and found himself in chains around his ankles and around his feet. And because he was drugged, he was disoriented, and he tells how, you know, he just said, you know, these men were so good to me. Surely this is a mistake. I must have been kidnapped. And it's a man named, I believe I remember right, Mr. Birch comes in. He just starts saying, there's a mistake. I am not a slave. I'm a free man. I'm Solomon Northrop. I'm from Saratoga Springs. I have a family. I have children. And they immediately started arguing with him. He said, no, you're a runaway slave from Georgia. We don't want to hear any of this business about you being free. And so he's adamant and angry and terrified, and they start yelling, and finally Mr. Birch calls for what he called the paddle on the rope, or the whip. And the paddle was this two-foot-long, basically an oar with holes on the end. And the rope was, or the whip was made from ropes with giant knots on the end, and they, he pr proceeded to beat him mercilessly, to, to hold him down. And Solomon tells us, all right, that he beat me until his arm got tired and then would stop and ask if I still insisted that I was a free man. And I refused to submit. And so over and over and over again, he would beat me and then stop as his arm got tired and ask. And still, I would not yield. All his brutal blows could not force from my lips the foul lie that I was a slave. When he broke the oar, he grabbed the rope, which was far more painful, and all my sufferings I can compare to nothing else in the burning agonies of hell. I mean, even a man with just a little bit of mercy would not beat his dog this way. For the next 12 years, Solomon found himself a slave sent all the way down to Louisiana, knowing in his heart that this was not how it should be, always hoping for freedom. But yet he said, no one, especially someone a citizen of New York who had wronged no one nor violated any law should be treated like this. And I know it's a depressing way to start a sermon, but it's really not much different from what the people of Israel are going through. And I, mean, I know when you start talking about slavery, as Americans, you can't not think about our own history. Right? American race-based slavery, the horrible things that happened to our African-American brothers and sisters. Right? And to start out here, this is going to be helpful, because you got a glimpse just of how ruthless and violent it was here, but also for it, the Israelites. There was no mercy, there was no pity, there was no compassion. I mean, Solomon tells, and I'm sure an Israelite could say the same thing, that the best time of day was when I was asleep and dreaming. Because I was awake, all I could do was groan and cry. I mean, the, the Israelite situation was very similar. I mean, they had these cruel taskmasters, as we read, that would 
supervise and make sure that they didn't waste away you know, whining and complaining. They had to work. And this is how an Egyptian describes the Israelite slaves in their situation. It says, the Israelite is dirtier than vines or pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His leather belt is going to ruin. Entering into the wind, he's miserable. His sides ache because he's outside in the wind. His arms are destroyed with technical work. He eats, what he eats is the bread of his fingers, and he only washes once a season. He's simply wretched through and through. You just get this very clear picture that everything about what Israel is going through is just dehumanizing. They're told they were nobody and nothing except for property fit to be used as their master saw fit. And so they cried out for freedom. They cried out for, for deliverance. So yeah, the American, our, our history helps us understand a little bit about what Israel's going through, but I think it also hurts us because, as we're going to see as we look at Exodus, it's really easy to misunderstand the kind of freedom they would have been longing for and crying out for. Because our modern ears here, okay, God, let my people go. Let us, let us go free. And we hear, okay, no rules, no master. I, I just want to get rid of Pharaoh. I just want to get rid of the problem. I don't want to go from one master to another. Right? The modern view of freedom is, well, you can hear it in the, the lyrics from Frozen. Let it go. Right? Where, where she sings, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. It's the kid's movie. Right? Now, freedom, according to Exodus, is much different. Because freedom... It's the freedom to serve and worship the right Lord and the right master. To go from, when you can follow the whole picture of the book, you start out in slavery in Egypt serving the Lord Pharaoh, and you end with freedom serving God in the desert. Same words, serving. And so this is going to help us because it really does push back against this naive view that we really are completely free to do whatever we want. Because we always, everybody is serving or living for something. You are living for something. And so if you look at verse 14 in chapter 1 here, where, where it describes their service, where it says they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick with all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they made them work ruthlessly as slaves. And you're starting to hear the repetition, but in the, the actual language, it's even more rep repetitious because it uses the same word for serving like five times. And so you could hear it more like this, where it says, they ruthlessly made the people serve and made their lives bitter with back-breaking service in mortar and brick and with every kind of service in the field, with every kind of service, they made them serve ruthlessly. I mean, you hear the repetition, which is why our English translations don't translate it that way, because it just doesn't sound right. But it's just highlighting this big theme that runs all the way through the book. It's that God comes to you and I to set us free so that we might serve him. To be set free from the things that we are presently serving. 
Because that's what's going to make us bitter and angry and crushes us. And so later, for example, when Moses comes down to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, it's all, let my people go so they, they might worship me in the desert, that they might hold a feast to me in the, in the wilderness, that they might serve me. It's the teaching all the way through the Bible that everybody, every human being, is living for something, and it's a kind of slavery. And whether you are free or not depends on the character of the one or the thing in which you are serving. Does that make sense? All right, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6. This is 6.15 and following, if you're taking notes. Right, where this is this whole thing. Are we free to sin because God has completely set us free by grace? If he's just going to forgive us, why should we not do whatever we want? Then Paul says in verse 16, Do you not know that it, you, if you... Yeah, try that sentence again. <laughs> do you not know that if you pre- present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves as the one of whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. You can read it later on your own, but Paul's saying the same thing. That what we live for, our service, is a form of worship. You were made to work. You were made to serve. You were made to, to follow a Lord and Master. Everybody's doing that right now. And if it's not God, if it's not the, your Creator, you're going to substitute it with something else. And as we're going to see... If you serve anything other than God, it's going to crush you. God is the only place where you'll find freedom. So let's look at this and see how this is true. Because this is the first point. Serving anything or anyone other than God is slavery. And it actually is going to eventually turn into misery. It's going to be ruthless. Because unless you are absolutely ravished with the beauty and glory of God, unless he is the most important and central thing in your life, we're we're slaves to sin and suffering. As as one commentator said, that this this whole idea of exodus, of being set free, it's the end of captivity to Pharaoh, but it's only the beginning of freedom. And so we we really do need to talk about this. I I say this as someone who is a Christian, but I still haven't got the past slaveries completely out of my system because I'm a sinner. Does that make sense? And so when God leads us out into the wilderness and he takes our exodus experience, our, our, our slavery with us, his goal is to get us to trust him more and to see that with him is joy and with the past things really is misery. Right, so... We need to talk about this because I know you're hearing me say that you're slaves, and that's not a cool thing to do. Right? It's not a popular thing to say. It's probably not what you woke up thinking about yourself, that I'm a slave. Right? We're Western. We don't like to talk about it. It's not a category that we've been taught to interpret the facts of our lives. Because really, we tend to react just the way Jesus' audience did in John 8. Right? When he said... If you abide in my word, you'll be my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And everyone said, hold on, hold on. We've never been enslaved to anyone. I am completely free. I make the decisions I want to make when I want to make them. 
But serve, this is true, that serving anything or anyone other than Yahweh, the Lord, is miserable. And so let's look at these two categories of slavery that we have here in Exodus. So I think it will help make sense of some of the things that we're experiencing and going through. I mean, the first kind one is everyone at some point is going to experience slavery that's not your fault. It's just part of being human. So you saw here, the people of Israel were literally born into slavery, born under, sentence, under a sentence of death to be slaves from cradle to the grave. They had this fog of unyielding oppression, and it was hopeless. And they did absolutely nothing to deserve it or to, to throw themselves into this. It was just simply a matter of fact of the time and place in which they were born. I mean, you got the story. This was after Joseph. And they're here. It's, it is part of God's plan. But most of these people that you're thinking about that are suffering, they didn't, they didn't do anything to get there. It just happened for them. It was, well, you could, but you also have to look at it from this, the sovereign perspective, right? That, yeah, it was nothing that these people did other than to be born at this particular time and particular place, but it was the result of God's sovereign plan for them. To be born into a slavery that was not their fault. This is Genesis 15, where God said to Abraham, talking about these people, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and there will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. I'm running through this because I have a, I'm going too fast. Let's just slow down here for a second and just put yourselves in their shoes. Where you wake up knowing that the situations you have to face today are not going to get better. Hopeless. I mean, the, the wretchedness that we talked about, the misery. It's day in and day out, tears and pain. How many times do you think they must have cried out, God, where are you? What are you doing? We're supposed to be your people, and yet here we do, here we sit, rotting away in misery. And yet, as you know, that we know the bigger picture, that this was God's sovereign plan for them. And so we need to walk a line here for a moment. We're going to do some, some theology to hold two things very close together that the Bible does. that says that you and I suffer and evil happens, and God is sovereign, but he's not the cause of evil. People are. That what you and I intend for evil, God means for good. That horrible things are done by people to other people because evil runs through the hearts of every human being, and God is so sovereign and so much in control that he can use the evil intentions of every heart to work out for the good of those who love him. And I know that's difficult. But to hear it again, I'll say it another way. That God's control is so detailed that not a hair can fall from your head without his permission. And yet he can use the evil and brutality inflicted by sinners for the eventual good of his people. It's a perspective you find, and that's what Joseph said at the end of Genesis 
It's what you find in Romans chapter 8. It's what you hear in the Psalms. I mean, I read this past week in Psalm 119, God, it was good that I was afflicted, for you taught me how to obey, how to love you. And so as we come to this account, we have to hold these two things together, and I'm hoping it's going to help you make sense of the hardships in your life that you were born into. Right? That this is God's plan. But everyone in the moment, the nation of Israel, all they know is the suffering right in front of them. They can't see the whole picture over 400 years. They're just living their lives, and all they see is what appears to be the, the apparent silence of God in the face of their slavery. And all they can do is blame the people next to them, the Egyptians. So I just got to ask, right, to, to make, bring this to the 21st century, what kind of life experiences have you had that you had no say over that still control the way you see yourself and your life? Right. The families we were born into and the broken homes. The words that people have said can often be slavery. I mean, it's one of those weird things where you can be told a million times how loved you are, but the, the words you remember most vividly are the hurtful ones, enslaved. I mean, you didn't choose that kind of suffering. Something you're just born into by virtue of living in a place and a time. Right, or sickness and disease. It's just part of living in a fallen world, right? Born into a place where people we know and love or maybe us ourselves are sick and suffering. I mean, when I was in Madagascar as a missionary, I remember uh, working with a friend had taken a man off the street who had epilepsy. And so when my friend Henny met him, he suffered from seizures. And because he was poor, he could never afford the medication to hold the seizures at bay. And because he had the seizures, he couldn't get a job to get the money to pay for the medication. So he was just trapped in this hopeless cycle of sickness, never to be set free. And so we tried to, to pay for some medicine to help get his feet under him. Right? I mean, these are the situations that everyone goes through. And so we can really can relate to, to these people in our text. They're enslaved, not by choice. You have stories of slavery that you could tell me about. But it's not just that, right? Slavery, born under sentence of death without hope of freedom, just stuck living in the shadow of some kind of oppression or difficulty. There's also the kinds of slavery that are our fault, that are our choice. I mean, if you've ever struggled with addiction or know people who struggle with addiction, this, these stories are really going to resonate. Because as you follow the people of Israel, as God takes them out of slavery, you start to realize they're actually addicted to Egypt. Because <laughs> they get out into the desert with God who set them free, and they start to say things like, what, did you bring us out here to die? It was so much better for us in Egypt. Right. Let's go back to the, <laughs> to the all-you-can-eat buffet, the leeks, the cucumbers. It just doesn't make any sense. They want to go back to the destruction. That's their choice. And so you can think of addictions, I mean, these days, inappropriate websites, pornography, alcohol, drugs. 
This is, what, this is the whole thing. If you live for anything other than God, it will crush you. It will lead to anger, to bitterness, to despair, to, to lose complete control of your life because you're, never, you're always controlled by what our heart wants most in the moment. So if you live for comfort, you're going to get angry when you're not comfortable. If you live for family, when your kids fail, you're going to die with them. And if you live for religion, right, being thought of as a good person, I know we're in church, and I'm, right, I'm, not, I'm picking on me too. Right? Religion can be a form of addiction. Of, of neurotically needing to be seen as the good religious person, keeping God's rules. Right, so this is the message of Exodus. The place where God comes to deliver his people from slavery in a place where sometimes where we haven't chosen and, and all of us have addictions that we have chosen. That we're all slaves, but God is working for our freedom. Now, we have to work something else into the, the details here, because this is what the text does. 400 years of slavery. There were generations of people that were told, God knows them and loves them, that you are somebody because of the covenant. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he promised to set us free. He's a God who cares. And yet whole generations saw prayers go unanswered. And to me, this is one of the hardest things about these two chapters, is just how long God did not, he waited to act. Because if you read these chapters on your own, how many times was God mentioned as somebody active? I mean, his name's mentioned twice, but once to describe religious women, and the other to say that he gave them children which had nothing to do with setting them free, outwardly. Right? And so we got this question, where is God in the midst of our slavery and our struggle? You can go through the story here. Pharaoh conducts a successful smear campaign, right? He, he tells all the Egyptians that Israel is going to ruin everything, they're stronger than us, and they're going to they're kill you. And so it's this ruthless propaganda that convinced everybody that the best thing to do was to, to control them through slavery, through hard service. When that doesn't work, right? I mean, maybe he thought that they would work too hard and wouldn't have as many kids or that they would die because of the ruthless slavery and they just wouldn't grow. That failed. When that didn't work, he came up with this plan right, for the Hebrew midwives to secretly slaughter these infants. When I first read this, you got these two Hebrew women, and I was trying to figure out how in the world, what did he picture to happen? I mean, how in the world would a, a Hebrew mom just let the Hebrew wives, midwives, kill their son? And what he's saying is, I want you, as soon as the baby's delivered, to pretend like these kids are stillborn. Just kill them, snuff them out if they're boys. It's horrible. Of course, the women don't obey. They don't listen. And when that doesn't work, he orders everyone to kill the Hebrew boys. So even the Hebrews and the Egyptians are ordered to do this horrific thing. 
where is God? All right, we know all this evil. Right, and then, then you get to Moses, and there's hope. Right, Moses is found and adopted by an Egyptian princess. She ignores her dad. She has pity and compassion. And so you just kind of feel like, great, finally somebody's here. I mean, if you're reading this for the first time, somebody here can finally set God's people free. It's going to set, free them from their, their slavery. He's going to have the power and resources and the connections because he's both Hebrew and Egyptian. And then Moses gets angry and kills an Egyptian guy. And his own people reject him. And he's forced to go into exile into the wilderness. And so you, you essentially have 350 years of silence and the only mention of God is in the background that nobody sees. Which is a brilliant way of writing if you stop and think about it because this is how you and I live our lives. Right? Of, that our natural human response is to assume that God doesn't see us, that God doesn't care when we're stuck. We say, like we sang this morning from Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, have you forgotten me? I mean, from our point of view, God seems silent when it comes to our suffering of slavery. And yet, if you go back through the story, there's so many coincidences. You've got to see that God really is silently working in the background. And that's true for you and me. Right. I mean, why does the Egyptian pharaoh's extermination plan fail? He persecutes brutally these people, but then the opposite happens. They're fruitful and multiply. And that slavery that it was his idea to snuff them out actually turns a family into a nation. It's all part of God's plan anyway. His plan to execute all the boys is what raises up a deliverer to set God's people free. And it gives Moses the training he's going to need later on in life. So Pharaoh's evil is actually working out God's plan for good. Even Moses' stupidity works out for the good of the nation. <laughs> right, he's, it seems, and we want to say, okay, if you're going to set some people free and there's evil going on, just carry a big stick and it's right to kill the oppressor. It, but it really is just anger. Right? He sees one of his brothers, he lashes out and kills him, and he gets rejected by his people and sent off, tail between his legs. He tried to set his people free and failed. But it turns out what Moses needed was 40 years in the desert to learn humility, and that he needed God's help. And so here's, here's the point of the story, of the text. Just because evil is around you and in you and, and it's happening to you, it doesn't mean God isn't working in the background for your deliverance. I mean, how else could all these coincidences have taken place? Every evil thing Pharaoh did to crush Israel worked for their deliverance. We're coming to an end here. But just stop, just stop here for a minute. Is this not the hardest thing to see and to hope? It's a Christian platitude. When bad things happen, to say God will work it out for good. And yet our text shows us he is going to work it out for good, but it's just not going to be the good that we might see. And yet behind the scenes of misery and hardship in your life, in my life, God's working all these things to set us free, that we might see him. 
Think about the questions people ask when bad things happen. After every major national tragedy like 9-11, everyone wants to know, where was God? Is he a wimp or is he just not care? Is he not sovereign or not compassionate? Which is it? Don't you think the people of Israel had these questions too? And yet the narrator shows us that over a course of several lifetimes, God silently works Pharaoh's evil's plan for his people's freedom. And nobody saw this deliverance coming in the way that it came. I mean, everything here is just ordinary life lived in terrible circumstances. Everybody just put one foot in front of the other trying to just deal with it. Because you have a loving mother protecting her son. You have two Hebrew women who have a heart. Right? They don't want to kill babies. And then a compassionate Egyptian princess. All these things are just people doing what's right in front of them. It's just like us. Because they, they don't have the wisdom or the eyes to see God's plan. And so this is what I want to challenge us with this morning. When you and I are tempted in, the, in our misery, which we all are, you say, this is, this is dumb. There's no good reason for this to happen to me. Why me? God, where are you? I mean, God's showing us here. Well, he's going to say to us something like this. You, you can see one speck of light in the universe in a place that is billions of light years across. How could you ever think you can see what part of God's plan is good and isn't, isn't good? I mean, you have one thread... God's balancing every thread of every person who's ever lived to work out our redemption, our, our freedom. He says, trust me. Trust me that I am right there with you in your suffering, and that I will work this out for good. We might never see the good. And we have to learn to make peace with that. And I, I know that's hard. <laughs> So this is where we come to, to the end. I mean, the way God sets his people free, this is absolutely astounding, is he gives hope through completely unexpected means because the heroes of the story are women. Right? In the ancient world, women weren't the heroes. Right? I'm not trying to, all, all God's children are equal, but I mean, the way the ancient people viewed women was as second-class citizens, and the heroes here are two Hebrew midwives. So they're not Egyptians, so they're down. They're women, they're already down. They don't have children, so they're already despised or at worst cursed by God. And so God uses these women to, to say, bring about God, the deliverance. He uses unexpected means to set us free. And so there it is. God silently and sovereignly serves to set us free through ways that no one would ever expect using evil for our good. And if I stop there, you could all say, you could all say Mazel Tov, right? That would be a Jewish sermon. I hope you could hear how this points to Jesus. We're called to trust him no matter what you're going through, to put your hope in the deliverer that God has sent to set you free. But it's impossible apart from seeing God's deliverance with your eyes. And we live in a privileged situation because we live on this side of Christ. Right? Moses' deliverance set Israel free physically but did nothing to change their hearts. 
They didn't want God after it was all said and done. They were scared of him. The gospel tells us of a better deliverer. The one who was born under a sentence of death, who was from two different worlds, who chose to identify with a people who despised him. Jesus, the God-man, wrapped in human flesh, came from heaven to earth. Even he had to deal with the threat of infanticide. I remember the story of King Herod trying to kill all the babies so that he wouldn't become king. This Jesus was sent out into the desert and returns to lead his people out of slavery, not wondering if it was going to cost him his life, but fully knowing that he would die to set his people free. And so when you look at the cross, this is what I want to end with. Struggling with all these questions, God, do you notice me? I know you tell me I'm supposed to trust you in the darkness. Nobody thought that Jesus dying on a cross that kind of evil was good. Everybody was crushed. Nobody saw the crucifixion as forgiveness of sins as we celebrate it. They saw it as a wicked man getting his just desserts for our sin. I mean, nobody saw God working when Jesus said, God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? And yet this was the bombshell of glory that God used to transform the world that he had silently prepared over centuries, working in the background so that all this would work out for your freedom because he loves you. Because right? it's, it's only at the cross that you see God's sovereignty and compassion coming together where it's not an either-or, where he is fully in control of history, where he's able to use the evil intentions of mankind to set you free from your slaveries. Forever free from the guilt and shame of rejecting him. Forever free from slavery to death. Forever free from, from needing to impress God by your goodness because he fully accepts you. I mean, do you see it? We might never have the eyes. I know I don't. I won't ever have the eyes to see why the things happened in my life as they've happened to them. Nor do you. And yet what the gospel teaches us, that if you look at the cross, God really is silently and sovereignly working to set you free. And he began in that work at the cross to give you hope that this one day really will be finished. Right? That you won't wake up one day with aches and pains in your body. You won't wake up one day crying, saying, God, when will it end? Because you're going to experience the beginning that has no end. I love the first time that God's name is mentioned here in Exodus 2. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant. It says, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is what the cross teaches you. That if you cry out for help, God hears you. And this kind of knowledge is so intimate because of the one who died for you. It's the kind of knowledge that says, I'm coming. I'm getting off my throne. I'm going to shake heaven and earth. 
I don't care what it takes to set you free. So I pray that you would do that, that you would see this hope that, that, that's begun in his son. Let's pray. God, I know there are those of us who are suffering from various slaveries, whether self, self-inflicted or, or just something we're, we're forced to deal with by living in a broken world. I pray that they would see what Christ has done and see that you really do love them, that you are God with us, Emmanuel, that you've already begun this great work of redemption. Help us to see that you are a good dad. And that even when we can't see what you're doing, we can look at Jesus and know that we are loved and cherished more than we deserve. May that be true for us as we go through this week. May we believe it in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 455, And Can It Be? We're going to sing one, three, four.